Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number 12, recorded in January 2020, and today I talk with Anne Doran. You'll have to forgive us the summer and the summer noises in the background, cicadas, airplanes, husbands banging around, all make an appearance. One of the challenges with podcasting in someone's home in the middle of summer, all about keeping it real. In line with our theme of the International Year of the Nurse and the Midwife, Anne is a senior staff nurse in the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit at Starship Children's Hospital here in Auckland. She's also the coordinator of the PICU Bereavement Follow-Up Service. Anne's background is cardiothoracic intensive care, and it was while working at Green Lane Hospital that she first became aware of the need for bereavement follow-up for grieving parents. She was instrumental in setting up the bereavement service at Starship when the current unit opened in 2003. In this episode, Anne and I talk about her various roles in the paediatric intensive care, her volunteer missions to Fiji undertaking paediatric cardiac surgery, the PICU bereavement service, the importance of making death as bearable as possible for families, and how to care not only for families and children at the end of life, but also for our colleagues. And finally, about the importance of gratitude and quiet. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and get to know Anne Doran. Thank you for joining me today. This is great. We're sitting here in sort of 26, 27 degrees, lovely yeah. sunny day out there, and we're sat inside having a chat. <laughs> too hot outside. It is very warm outside, um, so summer's definitely here. So, Anne, you work in the paediatric intensive care at Starship Children's Hospital here in Auckland. Um, what's it like to work there? Let's start with that. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I mean, I love it. I'm fortunate that I only work part time, so I don't get too overwhelmed by mm. everything. I think that makes a big difference to how you handle your job. Um, but how I, many days a week do you I work? I do so? three, twelve a fortnight, plus I do right. my office time on top of that, which is another eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just love the variety mm. of the work. There's, um, it's the usual intensive care stuff plus transports plus ECMO. We do transplants, we do neuro, we do cardiac, we do, it's really very, plus we have the long-term uh, ventilated children who are a different sort of focus as well, so mm. I think, I, I sort of feel like New Zealand don't realise how lucky they are to have such a good service, because it really is um, world standard, mm. probably better than some, some you know, well-known intensive kids around yeah. the place and, and I think it's just a great place to work because of the variety and I always like every day's different. Yeah. yeah. So Starship um, Paediatric Intensive Care takes children from all over New Zealand. Yeah. Um, at what sort of point I guess in their illness are they referred to Starship? Well we get a lot of referrals that are purely for um, advice giving. Mm-hmm. So 
a unit or call, and particularly smaller, um, more rural um, regional hospitals will call for advice. Mm. There's a lot of information on the Starship, on the clinical guidelines, which are accessible uh, all around the country. Mm. And I'm not sure if they're accessible overseas, actually. But um, there's so straightforward things like the asthma protocol, diabetes protocol, that sort of thing are all on there. But people still call for advice mm. and just reassurance often. Yeah, yeah. Anything, it depends whether we go and pick them up, depends on where they are mm-hmm. and how long they're likely to be to require an intensive care type environment. So a child that's ventilated but was possibly going to be extubated in the next day or two who was in Waikato mm-hmm. or Wellington or one of the bigger centres, they can probably manage that. Right. Um, but somewhere smaller will think, okay, they haven't, you know, they're st- standing handbagging the baby because yeah. they've got no ventilator, so yeah. then we have to go and get them. Yeah. <laughs> so that that a lot of that depends on, yeah, the size of the of mm. the um, unit where the patient is and on um, the expertise of the people that are working mm. there, and then how long the child's going to be unwell for, how critical the illness is. Yeah. And, and I, if they need specialist services like cardiac or neuro, obviously yep. they need to come to us. Yeah, because that's the only place in yeah. the country that yeah. provides those services, right? Yeah. So, And I guess it shows the variety of services mm. available throughout the entire country, doesn't it? Particularly yeah. for um, paediatric patients. Yeah. 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 Um, so what age range sort of would you expect to see in the paediatric? Um, zero to, <laughs> theoretically, to I think it's 15, but we sometimes see older children if they've been in the service. So if they've got paediatric oncology problems, then they'll still be under paediatric oncology. So up oh, to okay. 18, we have occasionally we have older, as you know, um, <laughs> adult congenital <laughs> cardiac patients that'll come to us still in their 40s, <laughs> only for the night, and then yeah. they go back to the, to yeah. the adult wards. Yeah. yeah. And so you talked about um, retrieving patients. Mm-hmm. So patients are quite mobile around New Zealand, which um, doesn't happen in other mm-hmm. countries um, and provides its own unique challenges and logistics, particularly from a, a nursing perspective. So do you do some um, transports yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, involved in the transport, transport team. team. Yeah. And how does that work, briefly? Well, Basically, you're, there's a team of transport nurses who have been trained in transports and we get orientated to that and get extra training, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and do safety days and things like that. Um, then we're rostered on a variety... So we're not rostered... Not all of our shifts will be transport shifts, so there's, we need to do some clinical mm-hmm. as well. At the moment, the transport team's a bit, a bit depleted <laughs> for various reasons, so a lot of my shifts are transport shifts. Yeah. And then I'm just on, on for transports. If a transport comes in, then I go. If no transport comes in, then I'm a runner mm. on the floor. Mm. And you sort of tend to go in fits and starts where, like, I can go for months and months and months without doing a transport, and then all of a sudden I have, you know, two in a shift. And so, yeah. yeah. And you're on call for transports I'm on tonight. Call for transports tonight because we're short. <laughs> so and, sorry, yeah. we're probably tempting fate now. <laughs> You'll be able to ring me tomorrow and tell me where you've ended up tonight. <laughs> Yeah, and ha- the, the, so the t- modes of transport are just ambulance to um, Waitakere or to Middlemore or to North mm-hmm. Shore, and then helicopter or rotary wing, which is sort of like places like Waikato or Wangarei or sometimes Tauranga or Rotorua, and then right. longer distance in the plane. Right. And that depends a little bit on what's available and what's um, how critical the patient is, how quickly mm. we need to get them. 
to start it. Mm. And what sort of response do you tend to get when you turn up somewhere? <laughs> Most people are like, oh, thank God, Starship are here. Yeah. <laughs> Every now and then you get people that, you know, sort of, you don't want to walk in there and tell them what they should be doing. Mm. And um, and some people who have perhaps have got more paediatric experience sometimes are a little bit standoffish around us arriving and, you know, here we are, we're going to save the day sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think part of being a transport nurse is not going in there and telling people they've done everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's never <laughs> so going to be saying you've done a great job keeping this child alive. You, you know, we'll, we'll sort it out from here sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess it's that kind of um, sense of relief, isn't it, that, you know, you've managed this child mm, mm. this far and got them to the point yeah, that they can yeah, be taken yeah. um, to whatever they need next. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of Piku, what's it like to work there? Is it an enjoyable place to work? Well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy the um I really enjoy my colleagues, I really enjoy the work. There's always good days and bad days, some days are harder than others. Um And what led you into the intensive care environment in the first place? Because I know that you've worked there for one or two years. <laughs> <laughs> just a few. Just a few. Uh, well, I started out just, um, I preferred surgical nursing, I discovered, as it, when I was doing my training. And so I was looking for a surgical place to work. And I'd come back from overseas and I, there were, were no jobs. And I ended up doing um, geriatrics at Green Lane, which was <laughs> I found very challenging um, and then there was a job advertised for the cardiothoracic ward at Green Lane and so I jumped at it and mm-hmm. the rest is history really, was yeah. at Green Lane for a long time, moved into the intensive care unit when I did the course which was the Green Lane cardiothoracic course which was quite famous at the mm. time um, and yeah I discovered that I really enjoyed intensive care and stayed on in the intensive care unit after I'd finished the course and then went and travelled and with the view of coming back to get a charge nurse job so I worked in various intensive care units and um, paediatric and adult overseas. Mm. What sorts of countries? Um, Australia and the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Do you think the yeah. um, you know at the time they compared well with New Zealand or uh, was, quite different? Uh, it was quite interesting actually because when I went first, I went to Melbourne and did um, I did some adult cardiac and then adult general ICU and then I went to the Royal Children's. So I was away from Green Lane for about a year and a half, I suppose, before I went to paediatrics and found them just hugely advanced. And mm. it was probably it was the best time to work at the Royal Children's. It was really go ahead. Um, the surge, the cardiac surgeons there were probably arguably the best in the world, yeah. and there was, you know, Frank Shan, who we all know mm. as the intensivist from the Frank Shan from our little <laughs> little, our little Bible, yes, um, and so it was really innovative, and yeah. and I learned a lot, and then I went to the UK and went to work at Great Ormond Street, and initially I couldn't get a job there because I wasn't sick children trained, right, and when I went for the interview. I said, but I've been doing this sort of nursing. 
you know, at Green Lane and, and, and the Royal Children's, and, and the person that interviewed me said, oh, Green Lane, oh, do you know Rachel Ronaldson, who was our boss <laughs> yep. at Green Lane? And I said, oh, you said, oh, Rachel's a good friend of mine. Oh, well, you've been at Green Lane. Well, that's fine then. <laughs> and nothing about the Royal Children's, yeah, who, yeah. Who, was, who were way more advanced. And I found at that time, and this is quite, you know, this is the 80s, so it was a long time ago, it was like going back in time, going mm. from the Royal Children's to Great Ormond Street, mm. because they just did everything on... Um, We've always done it this way. This is the Great Ormond Street way, and there was no telling them. And there was a group of us who were quite new um, coming into the unit, and who worked in different, you know, from various countries, mm. and saying, "Well, why are we doing this?" Yeah. And they're like, "Well, we've just always done it that way," and you couldn't yeah. contradict anything. And yeah. So I found it quite frustrating. I'm sure it's gone ahead a lot since then. <laughs> I had to put Great Ormond Street down, but I felt like they ran on their reputation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then I came back to Green Lane, and we found that we were actually ahead. And in some things, mm-hmm. they were better. Yeah. They were really good at fontans. Yeah. Um, not so good at switches. So that yeah. But yeah. So it was so, and then Green Lane had come quite ahead because I'd been away for three years. Mm-hmm. That sort of moved ahead with things as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then spent a year at Green Lane, and then, and the ICU, and then did get a um Chashney's job for mm-hmm. a couple of years. And then, of course, moving into um, Auckland Hospital yeah. and separating yeah. um, between Auckland City Hospital for the adults and mm. the Starship um, Children's Hospital for Paediatrics. How did you find that move? I found it really hard. Yeah. Um, the I didn't. I'd never wanted to to do general peds for the same reason that we talked about um, yeah. around that being too close to home because I had young children mm. myself and I found I didn't want to look after children that could be my children. Yep. Whereas cardiac you could sort of step away from a little bit, although there was always that possibility that you could have mm. a cardiac child or mm. that they could develop myocarditis or something that wasn't the same as watching mm. a perfectly well child who suddenly gets sick or is in an accident. Mm. And, um, so I didn't want to do um, general peds, but I had worked in purely adult units overseas and knew that I didn't want to do that either <laughs> so so I went to the paediatrics side of things and really struggled for the first six months we had a manager who was fantastic and did a great job and that she there was a quite a lot of conflict between there was the PICU nurses and then mm. there was the Green Lane nurses and there was and of course all very strong personalities <laughs> and with definite feelings around how things should be mm, done mm. and so Vicky Crompton came in from she was actually from I think she'd been working in Canada she's actually English but she came from Canada and did a fantastic job of keeping everybody in line and, yeah. and being very fair around how she so she, so we would do things one way at Green Lane one way at and Piku, so she would say, "Well, we'll trial this for a month, and then we'll do it this way for a month, and then we can have a, then we'll do a questionnaire and see what people want to do." Yeah. And so it was all very fairly done. Yeah, I just struggled with. Like one of the first patients I looked after was a child with pertussis, with whooping cough in that side room, and that's just the most frightening thing in the world. Yeah, I bet. And um, and that was I was was nearly ready to leave. <laughs> I guess that's the thing, it's so different, isn't it, to just working as yeah. we had done in a solely cardiac yeah. environment. Mm-hmm. Um, although we had the odd pertussis on mm-hmm. ECMO. Yes, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, but not um, having that exposure to the different mm-hmm. sorts of illnesses, mm-hmm. different and, conditions. And all the nurses were all terrified of cardiac. Yeah. So whereas me, yeah. I'd give me a cardiac patient any day. Yeah. And so now does everyone do everything? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
yeah. yeah. We still have our, you know, I still prefer a cardiac patient. <laughs> and, I'm, and I still, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, like the, the neuro patients in particular, the head and the traumatic brain injuries, there's how you manage them, just the way as how you manage a cardiac, mm. a really sick cardiac, can make a big difference to their, their prognosis, to how yeah. they... And mm. so I'm very conscious of the fact that there's a lot of fine-tuning that goes on Although we've got really good protocols that we can follow, mm. I can mm-hmm. I just watch some of the old pakunuses saying, "Oh, I'm just going to do this and I'm just going to do that," and I think, "Oh, she's so clever. How does she know to do that?" And there's so much still to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? It's just that being exposed to mm. um, the experience of looking after different conditions yeah. and yeah, yeah, having that instinctive, intuitive kind of knowledge around how you manage your patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a lot of new nurses coming into Piku as well. Mm. Um, it's a large staff, and yeah. we talked with Nick um, yeah. Jeannie a little while ago. Um, are you involved in precepting new staff into the unit as well? Not officially preceptoring, no. I just do just mentor on the mm. floor. Because I, I, I don't work enough hours, and I'm um, on transports, and so I don't tend mm. to have that. that we're quite... Um, good around making sure that people get good continuity with the preceptors so the only time I sometimes I might work with a student nurse yes um sort of not got anyone allocated to her and just generally you know like if we're not too busy and there's a cardiac take back I might work with someone and do a Mm. cardiac take back with them Mm. yeah and so how do you find you know I guess a lot of people who are um supposedly (laughs) part-time but not there you know every day find it difficult to know who the new nurses yeah. are and yeah. make that sort of contact. How yeah. do you get around things like that? Any tips? Um, just introducing yourself to everybody because yeah. I and, and I'm so ter- I'm terrible with trying to remember everybody's names and I have to go back and look on the borders. Who's that nurse again? <laughs> um, I think and, and also just being interested in people, saying, So what's your background and, mm. and so having some idea of what they're actually because we do get some nurses from overseas who've got incredible knowledge and yeah. experience, so you don't want to be treating them like they're a yeah. new grad or somebody that's never done intensive care before. Yeah. So, and and also valuing what people's past experience is. Like we get some nurses that come from the ward that have worked on the ward for a long time, and they've got a lot of knowledge on mm-hmm. lots of general things that I don't know. Yeah. So I actually, you know, I'll ask their opinions on things. Yeah. So just because I've been there for years doesn't mean I know everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's being interested, isn't yeah, it? And yeah, just not yeah, being afraid yeah. to ask the questions. Yeah. And what about the medical staff too? The new medical staff? Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that can be challenging. I think the majority of our medical staff gain a lot. I think you, they need to come in with the right attitude, and most of them do. That mm. They're there to learn. Some of them feel that they've got to prove themselves by... Um, so they don't like us making suggestions around mm-hmm. perhaps how we should manage this patient. That's sort of like, well, actually, I'm the doctor and I'll decide how we're going to do things. And that can be quite tricky on transports Yeah. if you get someone like that. that there's not many like that nowadays. Most people, most of the registrars mm-hmm. know, you know, to actually value our experience. And, yeah. of course, they come from a range of backgrounds too. Like we might get an adult ED doctor mm. who's not done intensive care or paediatrics so yeah yeah but if you get but we also get picking 
doctors that have come from overseas or whatever. Yeah. So and they have got that knowledge. So it's trying once again asking. Yeah. So what's your background? And yeah. <laughs> when we go out on a transport, we'll be sitting in the ambulance on the way to the airport. And I'm so, so you know what? What do you feel comfortable with, and what what things you know should we be looking at when we get there, and especially when it's their first time out on a transport, which yeah. is, can be. Um, Filing all that information away. Yeah, yeah. and knowing that you've always got the phone and to to ring back to the consultant if you're concerned. Mm. But Mm. also appreciating their knowledge and not not writing them off as somebody that doesn't know anything because they do they they do always have that that knowledge. Yeah, 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 exactly. You never quite know what's gone on in the past, no. do you? And yeah, how it yeah. might be. We've used. had some interesting registrars that have worked in all sorts of places, like mm. done a lot of volunteer work and stuff as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've been on a helicopter before. I said to one, and he said, "Yes, I've been in the na and the and the air force." So oh. it's like, oh yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Slightly better helicopters yeah. than ours, then. <laughs> And so that's another thing that you've done um, over the years. Do you want to tell us a little bit, um, while we think of it, about some of the volunteer work in terms of the um, cardiac missions? Yeah, Mm. so we go to Fiji once a year um, since, what, 2014, I think was our first mission, to do cardiac surgery for on children over Mm. there that wouldn't otherwise get it. There's Fiji are quite in some ways are quite nicely set up for visiting teams. So mm. Suva has a, a unit that's built for visiting teams and so that's so it's not quite so basic as some other places. Other places. <laughs> so Lautoka not so much, but um so the intensive care unit is there is a much much more basic. Yeah. But it's I enjoy the straightforwardness of most of the surgery that we do. Um that they're in and out really quickly whereas you know what we do in at Starship is way more complex and a lot of the things that we do at in Fiji surgery wise they would be done by cardiac catheter in New Zealand so right those straightforward things that we don't actually see a lot of anymore mm. so what sorts so, of conditions oh you instance? know like it's P- PDAs so PDAs would be um or patient ductus would be often would be fixed by a um, device in New Zealand and Fiji then they need to be closed. Some, a big PDA still needs surgery. Um, ASDs, VSDs, we do quite a few tetralogies mm. um, and also valves. So children with rheumatic heart disease that have got dicky valves and um, our surgeon's pretty good at repairing and yep. so that's a way better option than replacing because yeah. with replacing you've got to be on long-term anticoagulation and that's not always well managed well monitored um, yeah third world countries so yeah. yeah so so it's really you know like one I can think of one little girl from last year who was she was I think she was about 11 or 12 and a little Fiji Indian girl and she had really significant mitral valve mm-hmm. disease and to the point where she actually um we actually were really concerned about her post-op mm. she was a little bit slower than the others but she did really well and the week she'd been she was a week post up and we were about to go home and I sort of we went and saw her and she was so excited because she'd been able to climb a flight of stairs <laughs> and that was the first time she'd been able to do that yeah. without losing her breath and it was you know and her mother's like so so now she'd be able to get pregnant you know these these kids get pregnant with their mitral valve disease yeah, and anyway die yeah yeah and so this was basically we saved her life mm, because mm. she will go and get pregnant so at some stage yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That you are actually 
I guess you feel like you're making almost more of a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they're incredibly that. grateful. And oh, yeah. yeah. Very aware of um, of the, the chance that they've got for, yeah. for a normal life. Yeah. yeah. And so how many um, paediatric cases sort of get done each year? Uh, last year we did 17. Wow. Sort of the first year we did seven, I think. So it's sort of like we go meaning to do seven and do twelve. Yeah, so, yeah, that might <laughs> There's always what a few happened. extras. I think, I think we did, might have done twelve the first year, um, and the most we've done I think was nineteen or twenty. Right, it's like that's yeah. three a day for yeah, well, that's more than that, isn't it? It's four a day for five days, so that's a lot of yeah. So they're not all bypasses, obviously, because mm. there's not enough mm. time. Yeah. And so, how long do you go up for on average? About nine days. Nine days. Yeah. We yeah. sometimes take a couple of days extra for some time out. Huh. <laughs> and this is all on your annual leave. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's funded by fundraising. Yep. Um, so it's Hats, the Hats for Kids um, Trust do mm. a lot of fundraising. Yep. Um, that's part of the role. Yeah. Is being involved in the fundraising. Uh, we get we do get some money from groups like the Latter Day Saints and. Um, What's gas? The lodge. Oh, the like masons. masons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Masonic lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of money from them, so that's great. But yeah, um, and it's just all really worthwhile work. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing for people to recognise is that you know you don't just go up there on your annual leave and, yeah, and yeah. do the you surgery. Work really hard. You work really hard in between times, um, yeah. generating the money and yeah, yeah. and finding the resources to be mm, able to do it mm, as well. Mm. So I mean, it's an amazing thing that um, happens each year, both in the paediatrics and the adults. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just so incredibly worthwhile. Mm, so mm. yeah, and I think everyone who's gone and done it, um, speaking from myself as well, having done it mm, with the adults, mm. um, you just get this amazing sense of having yeah. actually done something yeah, really yeah. worthwhile. And, and it's like, you know, in New Zealand, and we've learnt a lot from it too, things like, mm. like the early mobilisation, you know, like these kids, they want to get out of hospital because they don't want to be there when we leave because the care's not that great. And so they're all up and out and walking yeah. on day one. Right. If New Zealand, you try and do that with the parents yeah. and, the, and the parents are all like oh no he's just had heart surgery yeah. he can't get out of bed and you're like well actually he can I know. so they're not going to break and so well yeah. that was going to be one of my questions because I noticed um certainly in the adult patients there's mm. this hugely different approach mm. Mm. post-operatively from the patients and their families mm. um and like you say you know day one they're in their clothes yeah. they're wanting yeah. to get up and about they're wanting yeah. to eat and drink not just kind of lie there <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> Languishing, yeah. Why yeah, is that? Yeah. Or well, to me, I think it's because they know they'll, yeah. they don't want to get left in the hospital. Because that's, that's a lot of the Pacific Islands. And I'm not saying anything bad against the hospital. It's no, just no, that no. the culture is that if you, you go to hospital to die, yeah. and you don't go to hospital to get better. Mm. So they just want out of there as soon as they can. Yeah. So how can we encourage that sort of behaviour <laughs> in our own hospitals? Yeah. Well, we do to a point with the... Um, you know, like we've got the exact protocol now that that didn't only come from overseas work, but has partly come from mm. what people have seen in third world countries where they've had to be moved along quickly, realising the the benefit of that. Yeah. Do you want to explain yeah. just a little bit about exact? Well, exact is is it's around um, early extubation, early mobilisation, and early discharge, really. And so I have to say that that when I started, we started doing exact, it was before I went to Fiji, and I was a little scathing about, 
that what difference does it make? They're not going to get home any quicker because just because they get out of intensive care quicker, but actually they do. They do. And mm. seeing that it is actually, and, and a lot of it is also is around the anaesthetic that they get. Mm-hmm. So they need an anaesthetic that they're going to um, wake up from quickly, but be pain yeah. free. Yeah. So if we're going to get them mobilised, they can't be sore. Mm. but they also can't be too sleepy yeah. so it's trying to get that balance so the anaesthetists work pretty hard at getting the right mix mm. with that as well and then we have a um, you know you have a two hour exact which means they extubated with it at two hours post mm. return um, or the sort of four to six hours where we give them a little bit of time and then if they're looking alright then we'll go on an extubate mm. Yeah. So is this just in cardiac patients or in yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. in cardiac? So what sorts of surgeries would that apply to? Um, anything really. Yeah. I mean, obviously not the really complex hyperplasts, mm. but but all I'm saying that the glens. So okay. so the hyperplast is the first stage, glen is the second stage. Yeah. The glens usually done about between four and six months, and mm. they're early extubation. Yeah, yeah the, the hyperplasts not so much. Yeah, a few days, but some mm. of them fly so yeah and is that something that's sort of unique to PICU here at Starship or are there um, other paediatric ICUs well, that think are picked probably, up? Yeah, I'm not sure but I think I don't think that we were the first ones to do it mm. I don't think you'd have to ask someone who knows more about <laughs> that than me <laughs> um, yeah. but it certainly oh, yeah, yeah. I, I do find the difference there is a difference between cardiac patients and other patients which I hadn't realised when I first um was you know like I can remember a neuro patient where I was like oh no she'll be fine we'll just extubate her and then she just went and didn't breathe and it was like whoops learnt from that yeah <laughs> <laughs> obviously it wasn't just my call no 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 discussing. no <laughs> <laughs> and she ended up being retubed so it's like okay so she, so they're not like cardiac patients yeah yeah. yeah yeah I think we sort of forget that there are differences yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so right back when we sort of started talking we were you mentioned something about, you know, not every day is a good day. Mm. <laughs> what makes a bad day in Piku? Um, I sort of don't have too many bad days because I quite enjoy the stress, but I do find there's days when it's so heaving busy mm. um, and I actually get slightly panicky because I think there's no beds. Yeah. If a child comes in, a trauma comes in, we're stuffed. But we all sort of manage to squeeze them in somewhere. Uh, I think families can be really difficult and mm. and managing that and being very careful around saying the right thing and not saying the wrong thing is mm-hmm. sometimes really hard, especially when you're stressed. Yeah. Um, most, I would say it's most of the PICU staff are really um, we really work well as a team yeah we work people step up yeah every now and then somebody doesn't and that can be frustrating and stressful yeah yeah so I don't know what's a bad day I mean even you know when a child dies you might think that's a terrible day but to me if I can do if I can make that as bearable as possible for the family then that mm. wasn't a bad day I actually find that a real challenge looking mm. after those kids because because it does it, it makes a huge difference to those families mm. if you get it right. Yeah. So I actually find that really rewarding. Yeah. Part of what I do. So yeah. I guess having someone come in, having an unexpected death is a bad day when someone comes in and you you know you can just see them falling apart in front of your mm. eyes, and there's nothing you've, you're limited on what you can do about it. It's mm. probably a bad day. Yeah. 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 Mm. And so, 
One of your roles in the paediatric intensive care is as the bereavement services coordinator. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come about? Well, that was um, when I was working at Green Lane and I watched a couple walk out of the, the ICU without their child and thought, who looks out for them now? They just sort of set adrift. Um, at the same time as that happened, there was a couple of the other nurses were looking at setting up a bereavement follow-up service, which had Sid Cuthbertson and DCC had initially That's done, right, and yeah. then and so this couple of nurses took on um, Sid's research and did some research of their own and developed a bereavement team, and I was and sort of put out feelers saying who's interested mm. in being on the bereavement team, and so I said that I would be and I said what about what because it was a mixed adult paediatric unit obviously and I so I said well what about the the parents are we going to follow up the children as well and she was and the nurse was like well are you going to do it and I said well yeah I can (laughs) so there was sort of two or three of us that offered to do the paediatric follow-up um and then from there when we moved over to Green Lane um it just sort of I don't quite know why I ended up being the person that took it but (laughs) But I did. And I'm sure everyone was very <laughs> grateful that you did. And I had a friend working in Piku at Starship at the time who was also um, involved in the bereavement follow-up. Right. And over there, although it was completely different and that they their bereavement follow-up was really done by um, Consult Liaison, which is the okay. s- um, psychologist, psychiatrists at mm. Starship. And it wasn't a or what they did was they sent out a letter to family saying, if you would like contact, please contact us. Right. Um, and I felt that that wasn't enough because a lot of families simply won't contact. Mm. They're not proactive enough yeah. in their grief to be able to do that. Some families are, mm. but a lot of families aren't. And so I felt that we did need to make that phone call, mm. that phone contact. And so I, the nurse who I knew at Starship actually left and went overseas but, but I sort of had got a few contacts through here and that's how I got involved with um, the consult liaison team. It was Andrew Thompson at the time, was right. the grief counsellor yeah. at Starship. And so we met up a few times and worked out how, how this would work mm. and how we could work together. And we worked together really well. Yeah. So that was yeah. fortunate. There was nobody... And, and also, and just everybody has been so um, on board with it that there's huge buy-in from the medical staff, mm. from the senior medical team and from the senior nursing team. Nobody has sort of said, no, it's too hard. Good. So, yeah. yeah. So, that, so it's, I've been really lucky with yeah. having that support to do that. And how does the bereavement service work for, well, both for staff and for families, I guess, because yeah. there's different aspects, isn't there? Yeah. So, well, so we have a um, team of is around 10 senior PICU nurses who've expressed an interest in being involved and um, and that's sort of, it's a fairly stable team but sometimes mm. people leave or move on to other things and new people come on. Um, and we, we've forms filled out at the time of the child's death and that gets put aside for me and then I fill out a database with all the details and make up a sort of a package for, and I allocate the call to whichever nurse's turn it is, or if there's sometimes nurses will say, oh, can I please look up, you know, can I please mm. follow up with that family because I've looked after them or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then at two weeks we send out a sympathy card, which staff have signed, and a book called Beyond Words, which is on the, from the Skylight website, which was written by Andrew um, Thompson and Trish Irving, who's another great 
bereavement resource and um, a letter sort of introducing the service and then at six to eight weeks we call the family and check up on how they are mm -hmm. and follow that up with either a family meeting or counselling or just a chat like some families yeah. some parents just want to talk about their child with somebody who's not going to start bawling mm, and mm. you know a mother can't she can't talk to her who do you go to when you're upset you go to your mother well that's the grandmother and so she's upset yeah. as well so sometimes people just want to talk about yeah. the child yeah do you find that um on the whole that the families are receptive yeah. to the calls yeah. um yeah every now and then you get um somebody that's like you can tell they just don't want to talk mm -hmm. and and you, and sometimes the other thing we get is that, that you ring up and, and you say is now a good time to talk because with mobile phones you never know if they're in the supermarket exactly. or at work or something and and if they say oh no can you call me back in an hour and then you call back and they don't answer well then you know that actually they didn't want to talk mm -hmm. and that's that's fine then we'll just yeah. send out a letter saying if you need to this is you know the contact details and I find it much easier now with email like Recently, I've actually had a couple of families email me before the call. Oh, okay. Saying so that letter at two weeks. Yeah. Gives an email address and phone details, and then I've had people email me and say, actually, I do have some questions. Mm. So then mm. we can set it up, take it from there. Yeah. yeah. And who do you tend to contact? Because I mean, families can be quite complex these days. Oh. Uh, who do you identify usually as the, the mother? Yeah. So yeah. sometimes, sometimes if parents are separated will con contact both mm -hmm. mum and dad it depends a little bit on how much involvement dad has actually had because some dads are fairly absent so and you know you can ring them and they don't answer you don't sort of push it whereas with a mm. mother will keep on and I know that's probably not fair on fathers <laughs> but um it's just the way that seems and, and I'll often if I even if it is a separated family I'll, and I can't get hold of dad I'll say to mum so have you mm. heard you know how's so and so doing mm. um, and then I'll know from that whether I do need to pursue the call. Um, sometimes it's caregivers or grandparents. Yeah. So we've certainly had quite a number of young um, parents who we haven't been able to contact and then we've had a number for a grandparent, so we've rung the grandparent and that's been the person that we've gone through. Right. Yeah. yeah. Most most of we do the majority of our families we actually managed to contact now, but mm. before mobile phones or we know a little more scared. It was quite often we, that we didn't manage to contact people. Yeah. But now we mostly do and mostly people do want to talk yeah I think maybe it's around the preparation because they get a pamphlet at the time that the child dies and they're told somebody's going to contact mm. you so they're sort of waiting for that call waiting yeah yeah and are there any sort of common themes that come up during the course of the calls or sort of quite um, a broad range Most people have been fairly well informed. I guess the ones that aren't are the ones where it's been sudden mm. and they haven't had that ability to process things. So then those are the ones that are like, um, it's about 10% of calls end up with a family meeting. Right. And um, Kylie Jolian from Middlemore has started running a little bereavement day that she does um, where a lot of people from all around the country who have bereavement teams come and talk, oh, come and excellent. have a little networking yeah. thing which is really useful and um, sh and it seems like across the board it's around 10% that mm. come back for meetings which is interesting mm. and yeah most of those are the sudden deaths and also I would say a lot of Pacific Island families and that at the time of the death culturally they are 
very much the doctor knows best mm. and they don't question yeah. and then they go away and think about it and think actually I do have some questions yeah. So and perhaps we don't utilise um, interpreters as much as we should but I think we're better at that than we used to be mm. Mm. where we expect that you know, people say they understand, but perhaps they don't. Yeah. And, I, and I'm really pleased that those people feel comfortable coming back. Mm, mm. Because uh, for a lot of people, that's a really hard thing to do. Mm. Yeah. So we identified earlier on that a lot of our um, families in Piku come from outside of mm-hmm. Auckland as yeah. well. Yeah. So how do you deal with that, with doing the bereavement follow-up, particularly around meetings? Video conferencing. Video, yeah, yeah, you have. Just yeah. sort of doing that, and that works really well. Yeah. 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 So in that case, we'd utilise a paediatrician from the home. Oh, okay. Um, and it may be that that paediatrician hasn't been particularly involved in that case. Yeah. But they, I haven't found a paediatrician yet who's not happy to oh, support that family at the site. And I think that's really important because they need somebody there to follow up when the phone call's you know, when yeah. the conference is finished, that, that they can then talk a little bit about it. And yep. also those paediatricians have often um, connected those families to um, counselling or things right. that they need. So, yeah. so that's kind yeah. of handed back to their yeah. home, yeah. Um, yeah. home-based. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's a great way of doing it, rather yeah. than kind of interviewing them over Skype in their home. <laughs> yeah. And then leaving well, them... For some reason we can't do Skype. I haven't quite figured that out. But we did have one paediatrician yeah. who, who actually took his laptop to the family wow. and sat in the family's home with his laptop which I thought was that's above amazing, and beyond. Eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's phenomenal yeah, yeah yeah I guess it just shows that you know they see it as equally as important yes they do yeah and they're yeah. actually really glad that someone's doing yeah something yeah 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 and you know we've done a couple lately we've had um we've just started doing with the transports where we've arrived to pick up a child and the child's either died before we got there right. or died through that process and then we'll say so do you guys have a bereavement follow-up service and if they say no then it's like would you like us to do some follow-up with this family and yeah. oh yes that would be great or they can or they might say we've got a really good follow-up service and we're quite happy to do that mm. um, yeah Oh, that's great. So mm. adding to the workload, but yeah. huge benefits, yeah. hopefully, yeah. for the family. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and I think those are probably more important because they're usually sudden and yeah. unexpected. Yeah, yeah. totally. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, that's great. And what about including siblings of the child who's died? Um, so at the time of death or after the uh, meetings? At the moment, talking about meetings, but we'll come back to what actually goes on in Piku yeah. <laughs> at the so time of death. with the meetings, obviously the... If it's an Auckland meeting, then um, usually the fam- the children aren't involved, but we will, off- if the families are concerned about the siblings, then we mm. can refer to um, consult liaison who right. s- specifically work with children. So yeah. that's And sometimes we'll get a mum who says, oh no, I don't need any counselling, but I'm concerned about my mm. five-year-old. So the five-year-old comes for counselling and ends up the mother having counselling as well. As well. So, yeah, so yeah. sometimes it's a way of drawing... Yeah. Um, the families are into counselling. Down country it's much more difficult because there's limited counselling for children. Mm. So it depends on where they are. Sometimes we know where there's good counselling. Mm. Other times it's a bit hit and miss. And, you know, if you live on the west coast of the South Island and yeah, you're Pretty lucky to get counselling at all. So yeah, 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 exactly. And and also those small places for the parents, it's hard. I had one family from the west coast of the South Island, who used to go to Christchurch for counselling because they knew everybody in their community and they 
didn't entirely trust that the councillor wouldn't let something Divulge. slip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tricky. Very tricky. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so going back a step, I guess, we've talked about following up families after a bereavement mm. within Piku. What about working with families in Piku um, around the death of a child? And so I guess initially sort of um, in that stage, how, how do we help families to transition from probably a fairly active treatment plan mm. into a more palliative treatment plan perhaps? Mm. Well, sometimes it can be quite challenging. Mm. Some families can see it coming mm. So and, and often... Not often, but sometimes we'll broach the subject. Okay. Usually with a nurse. So, mm. like, so what would it look like if we didn't do this mm. sort of thing? Um, some families are totally, completely shocked when it's suggested that perhaps this isn't the right thing to do. So we talk about um, redirection of care now. So it's, yep. we're redirecting from active treatment to palliative. Uh we find it frustrating sometimes in Piku when you have children who have got multiple complex needs and they've never it's never occurred to them, it's never been said to them by their paediatrician that there will come a time mm. when going to intensive care isn't the right thing. Yeah. And so it tends to fall on us to do that and then of course we're the bad guys because but, but the paediatrician never told me that. We've been seeing this man for the last six years and he's never said, never mm. said that that our child might not live and you have to keep it you know and really you sort of got to get to that point where we're actually the child's spending more time in hospital than out mm. then you might want to think about and the times between intensive care admissions are getting closer and closer yeah that you might want to think about um is this are we doing this child any favors and it is really difficult for us because we always see them at their worst yeah and the parents say but he's got great quality of life yeah. and show you pictures of him at daycare and yeah things like that and and that's and they're probably right yeah and there's you know quality of life is very subjective and I think as time goes on and I'm not judging parents in any way here but they lose touch with what is normal mm. the abnormal becomes normal yeah and yeah and so they don't actually see it as suffering. Mm. So then turning around and saying, actually, we don't think this is the right thing. And although that's usually a medical decision, we do allow parents a certain amount of, um, you know, we still have kids that come back time and time again and we're thinking, what are we doing here? But here we are still. And those parents uh-huh. still firmly believe that that child has quality of life. Yeah. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah, but once we do get people on board, it's around making it a, a good death and making it, like we were talking before, making a death that you can live with, making it a bearable death. Yeah. Um, I always say to parents, it's never a good thing when a child dies, but we can make it a good death. Yeah. And that sort of makes them, because parents always hope that maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we do that one-way extubation thing and they just hope that maybe he will actually survive. And some of them do. Mm. Mm. Um, probably not for long, a long term, but for a period of time yeah um and then to thinking about actually this is really what's really important is that this is that my child isn't suffering anymore and we give them their child back really when you've got a child in intensive care you feel although we practice family-centered care and try and have families involved as much as we can that's pretty difficult when they're full of tubes and lines and 
So being able to take all of that away and give them their child back is mm. really precious to them. Mm. Mm. And sort of, um, I guess, reinstate some of those previous behaviours and experiences before they came into ICU. Yeah. So yeah. clothing and yeah. <laughs> touch yeah. and yeah. all those sorts of things. Bathing them, yeah. And talking about them, you know. Mm. It's sort of like, oh, he looks like he was a real little character. And yeah. then, the, you know, instantly, oh, yes, and they'll start telling you stories about them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to re-establish that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People always think, you know, like I can remember writing to a family, I'd never met this child, and I emailed them and I said, oh, he, se- he seemed like it was a real little fighter, he really had spirit, and, and they were like, oh, yes, he had so much spirit, and, and I'd, yeah. you just have to, you just sort of learn to know what parents want to hear about their children. Mm. That, mm. Yeah. Um, so what sorts of things in PICU do you do once you know that the patient is, you know... Um, sort of more on a palliative pathway. What sorts of things do you try and do to make it special for the the patient? We just try and move them to a side room so, yeah. so that they've got some privacy. Um, we get we have a lovely lady, um, Sarah Newman, who runs Baby Loss New Zealand, and she comes in her and her and Josie her offsider come in and do castings of hands right. and feet. So those are beautiful mementos that. That are um, that they do for free. Mm. Um, we do hand and footprints, um, you know, just the usual embossed hand and footprints. Mm. We collect locks of hair, things like that. Anything that the family want with a baby, we have little memory books that where we can put things into, and also that staff and family can write in. Right. Um, for older kids, I really encourage families to do a bit of scrapbooking. There's always a, yeah. a you know, an artistic auntie somewhere that that gets involved in that, and yeah. and that's a good way to involve siblings as well. And yes. Making, you know, making pictures and things for the for the the baby or whatever. Um, we allow them to stay in picu for the night. So usually, usually we have a time frame mm. around. So we're going to extubate tomorrow, or you know, we're waiting for grandma and auntie to come from Australia so we'll give it a few days for them to mm. congregate um, and then the, um, that last night the parents usually will stay in Piku so we can either put, if it's a baby, just have the baby on the bed with the um, parents or push two beds together and put mm. a mattress down or something <laughs> down the middle so they Get can creative. All, all sleep in the bed for yeah. the night. Yeah. Um, and just give them as much time and privacy as we can, mm-hmm. and then um, and they're just basically doing everything for their child. That yeah. you know they're helping with washing, dressing, all of those things, taking out as many lines as we can. Always leave one in for some a bit of um, morphine or medaz if we mm-hmm. need it for um, for pain relief or air hunger, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and then the ex- it's sort of like anything goes really it's what they want what Mm. they need to do and a lot of some families know you know culturally some families know what they need to do and they've got the aunties and the yeah you know the extended family helping out um some families have no idea what they need i've never had a baby die before i don't know what i'm meant to do what am i meant to do exactly and so it's directing them yeah and that yeah and how do you direct people who don't have any idea um so i can think of an example of one mum with a, a fairly new baby, um, I think he might have been home. He was a few months old, I think, and she was said exactly that. I don't know what to do, mm. and I said, you know, what time we can we're going to extubate, and what time would you like? To, I don't know. I don't know what time I, my child should die. <laughs> so and so I said, is it, you know anyone else you want to come? And so she she got her mother to come because um, I think there was a dad around, but he wasn't very present. 
and um, and then we just I said, would you like to birth the baby? I don't know. Mm. So we went and got the birth. She birthed him. She dressed him. And um, that was all. She just was really appreciative of, mm. of that we could do all of that. And that she could, and she, it was some stuff that she would not have thought of. Yeah. Taking the baby home is another thing after the mm. death. Um, that's really, obviously, a lot of Maori families do that, take them yeah. back to the marae. For um, non-Maori, it's less... It's not an acceptable thing, and people think, well, that's a bit weird, but actually it's not weird. I don't think anything's weird, and yeah. if, if people think it's weird, but you want to do it, just don't tell them. Yeah, <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> this is what this is what we did. So, you know, that's, that's um, yeah, it's what, mm. what they needed to do, taking your baby home and having, it, having her in her cot. People think, oh, that's a really weird thing to do. For that family, it wasn't. It was no, the right no. thing, and they were really grateful. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't think anything's weird. And yeah. I also don't think, I think that there's a, I, I don't like when people talk about complicated grief because I think all grief is complicated mm. and how you manage it um, is very individual yeah. and there's no right or wrong way yeah. of doing it. Obviously, you know, if you've got someone that's suicidal, then you need to get some extra help mm. but putting people on antidepressants because they're grieving is not the right thing to do because it's doesn't make the grief go away no, it does doesn't it? no yeah no. yeah yeah um how do staff in the piku feel about looking after um children at the end of life there's probably um a cohort perhaps we should say of staff but like me that mm. like doing it and are good at it um I think I wouldn't say that anybody is not given those patients, yeah. but they do tend. It does tend to be given to the people that are used that that do like doing it. On saying that, I've had you know I had a, a new grad who I didn't actually realise she was a new grad until you know after it all happened. She was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, she did a fantastic job, and yeah. she it was her first ever paediatric death, and I was aware of that, and I always say to people if it's your first death, tell someone. Mm. And if you know the runners should be helping the the charge nurse should be or the coordinator should be able to provide support if not direct someone else to provide support. We're all very aware when a child's dying in Piku and yeah. um, we do support each other around that because we know it's a really hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, you want to get it right for the family, so you don't want some poor nurse being thrown and not knowing what to do. It's really yeah. important that we support them through that. Yeah. yeah. And what sorts of um, support, I guess, too? Because, like you say, every every nurse or doctor in the unit knows what's going on mm, when a patient's mm, dying, mm. whether it's adult or paediatric. But also in such a family-centred environment, how do you support other families? Because they all know exactly yeah, what's happening too, do. don't they? Yeah, and um, I guess it depends on... Some families will ask about mm. it, and then it's, and it's difficult then because you've got confidentiality issues yeah. some families will know each other yeah so so then they'll talk to each other in the hallway anyway mm. and talk about it and I guess we do like I can think of we had a couple of quite long-term kids and one of them was dying so it was like has anybody talked to this other family mm. about that and so and it turned out that the dad had actually said oh so is that is that baby dying and so then it's around saying do you need some do you want to talk to someone about that and getting consult liaison involved with the other families as well mm. we don't tend to do debriefs with other families perhaps we should <laughs> there's another area to consider yeah. 
But no, but it's interesting, you know, in the adult world, um, it's a bit the same. You know, if you have transplant, yes, yeah. multiple transplant patients in the unit right. at the same time for a long period of time. They all know each other from the hotels. And, yeah. Well, exactly, and they all know each other from the waiting room or, yeah, yeah, you know, having been yeah. in the same four-bedded room or mm. something, um, and all of a sudden somebody's missing the next day. Yeah, so what yeah. do you... Yeah, how do you approach that family and how do you deal with that um, yeah. is, you know, hugely important. Yeah, I guess it's just being aware of it and, and you know, that particular, those particular families, there, there was every chance that that other child was going to die as well. So, yeah. you know, that you couldn't just say, oh, this is completely different to your baby because it actually wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do we um, help others around us, I guess, looking after... Um, families in that situation, how do we look after their well-being? The nurses, the nurses. And medical staff or um, allied health staff? Well, we've started doing the ACE reviews, which are more, that's more around a, um, an a, acute situation, which is a clinical review as opposed to an emotional mm-hmm. um, debrief. But it does help because people, if people are beating themselves up over missing something, then yeah. that can help in that way. Um, otherwise, I think talking to each other, knowing who's um, knowing that that's the nurse that's looking after that mm. patient that's dying. We used to have um, the board, the staffing board used to be up in our tea room. So if you, you'd go to morning tea and you'd look at the board and you'd think, oh, and you're sitting there with the nurse who's looking after that mm. dying child. How's your day going? You know, so you'd sort of do that. Whereas now it's been taken out of the tea room for reasons that you don't think about work while you're in the tea room. Yeah, yeah. But I actually miss that a little bit mm. because I think it's important to know what other people are dealing, dealing with in their day. Yeah. 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 Um, and often it's hard to know, particularly if you're tucked away in a side room. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, I th- so I think we do talk a lot to each other. We make um, staff aware of the um, what's around by way of support. So you mm. can go and talk to consult the on yourself. There's mm. EAP. Mm. You can sit down with Nick anytime. Um, yeah. Sit down with your team leader. Sit down with um, other staff. And I like because I do a bit of self care when I teach end of life care. Mm. Um, to the new staff and to the new grads and although the new grads do get a little session with consult liaison anyway right. um, about not getting to the point and we've had people do that where you get to the point where you ring up and you say actually I can't, can't come to work anymore mm. and that's too late yeah. then you need to recognise that you're sort of struggling with things and I often say you know like the kids that don't die are often to me more upsetting than the kids that do mm. so those ones that are just we're prolonging things because of medical decisions or because of parental decisions, um, those are the ones I struggle with more than the kids mm. that, that die. And sometimes it's a really depressing, awful place. And strangely, sometimes that's around Christmas. Yep. <laughs> when it's really hard, when you've got kids. Kids shouldn't be in hospital at Christmas. They certainly no. should be dying at Christmas. And exactly. So, um, just being being self-aware and encouraging people to do that. And... Most of the nurses in Piku, not all, but most of them have a little click of who they can talk to. Mm, mm. So the new staff coming in are the ones that I worry about, especially people coming from overseas that don't have a um, support network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do they get sort of, I don't know, I guess, hooked into a group fairly early on? Um, or I think generally. Yeah. You know, we have, we have a number of Filipino nurses, as you mm. probably do, and they're great support for each other. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. support. Um, a lot of English nurses who are mm. also really great support for each mm. other. 
Um, sometimes I worry about the doctors because <laughs> I think perhaps we don't um, provide them with the support. That yeah. But that's not my job. Well, is it? Maybe it is. We certainly talk to the registrars and most of the registrars are open to saying, well, that was a really hard mm. situation. I guess too because I know of all the kids that die because I'm filling, putting them into my database and we had one the other day where I was reading the notes and putting it in and thinking, this was terrible. I'm like, oh, that poor nurse. It was, this was just an awful situation. And so I went and checked in with one of the charge nurses and said, who's this nurse? Yeah. Did anybody talk to her about what she went through? And she said, yes, actually, we did have quite a debrief afterwards. And, Great. And I'll check in with her again. And, yeah. Yeah. Just making sure the support's yeah, there for Yeah, all, that yeah. she has said, yeah. you know, got that support. Yeah. Because yeah. often, um, you know, I think we're... S- so focused on providing for the families at the mm. time that a patient mm. dies, whether it's an adult or a child, mm. that you do sometimes maybe miss out the, the yeah. staff involved, mm. whether it's from the cleaner or the yeah. consultant, yeah. the nurse, yeah. um, often sort of get forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the um, things that we do, as you know, is if a child dies or anybody dies in um, hospital, we bless the room after mm. they've left. And I went to something where I was told what you should be doing when you bless a room, how you bless a room from the Māori perspective. And one of the th- things you do is you pray for the staff who looked after the child. And so that's what I always do. And, I, and I'd done that and I walked out and the nurse said, you're finished? And I said, yes, I prayed for you. And she just started crying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh. uh-huh. And you know, it was like, and gave me a big hug, oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, just that recognition of how hard it was. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think we forget it sort of, it's very easy to normalise it and just make yeah. it a part of yeah. that's just what happens in yeah. ICU, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. So when you leave work at the end of the day, having had a, <laughs> a tough day, patients died or, you know, it's just been one of those days, what sorts of things do you do on your way home to kind of put it to rest, to walk back into the house as a hopefully calm person, not yeah. taking it home? Yeah, I don't know really. I- um, I don't know what I do in the way on the way home. Carpooling's always good when I know a lot of the girls carpool and have a chat on the way home. Um, I think have a glass of wine when I get home. <laughs> yeah. It's the only time I really yearn for wine <laughs> after a day shift. <laughs> um, yeah, just I guess to a point like we were talking about the other day is dissociating dissociating yourself a wee bit from it. Mm. Um, being, I was reading something the other day about. It was to do with anxiety, but it was but it was about gratitude. So at the end of the day, you think about what, um, what happened in the day, and things where you might have thought the situation went really badly. Actually, you think try and think about what good things you actually did, or so then you can sort of think actually it wasn't that bad because I did this and I did that, and so that was okay. And I think um, I'm a Christian and I pray and um, my prayer has changed a bit. Like a lot of Christians pray for what they want. Mm. Um, my, I've tried to veer away from that and I, and I express gratitude for what, mm. and I think that has made a difference in how I see the world, mm-hmm. is that I'm grateful for what's, for what's good. Yeah. And so I think, and the other thing that I was thinking about the other day was quiet. Mm. I really like quiet, like just sitting in the moment and no beeping, nobody asking for you, nobody 
rushing around just quiet and peace mm. and I think that's something that we don't do enough of yeah I was thinking about like with the the TBI kids that um who need their brain to recover and we we got told off a few years ago by one of our physios because you see this child lying there staring at the ceiling and you instantly think he should be entertained and so you put a TV in front of him because you want to keep him entertained mm. and they and she and the physio was like you don't do that his brain his brain is resting and recuperating and I thought you know we don't do that do we yeah. we don't let our brains rest and recuperate exactly we on our phone we're watching Netflix we're doing somebody's on somebody's calling us about something we don't actually just sit and have quiet and no input mm. We need to do more of that. I think we should do more of that. I, I guess it's hugely like meditation, but I've yeah. never been very good at meditating because I yeah. couldn't still my mind enough. It's being, yeah, I think nowadays it's you know being present and being mindful right. and right. <laughs> See, <laughs> but no, I think that's um, a really important thought to sort of probably wind up on and um, <laughs> provide ourselves some quiet space for the afternoon um, to enjoy the sunshine, to yeah. rest and recover. <laughs> Um, before you go to work tonight hopefully, hopefully not <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or think about yeah, I think that's probably all <laughs> well thank you very much for your time and um, thank you, Rachel. have a good rest of the day I hope you enjoyed that Anne has been a friend and colleague for a very long time. She's such a humble person who has led the development of this outstanding bereavement service within Piku and certainly deserves recognition for this. Her insightful comments towards the end of the interview regarding being self-aware, fostering gratitude and in particular about the need for quiet in this modern world just cannot be underestimated. Try and take a moment just to sit quietly, even for a minute or two, after you finish this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for coming. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.